Hello, lovely. It's Shauna Lee, and welcome back to the Soul Frequency Show podcast, where we're stepping into the light and raising our frequency together. Each week, we get to return to this sacred space to have conversations about the things we all experience in life, love, health, and career. A space where we, as spiritual beings, having this human experience, can amplify our gifts and remember our truth. The title of this episode is From Possibility to Reality. I've been thinking back on the almost five years that the Soul Frequency Show has been in existence and how much has changed for me personally in that time. I'm sure a lot has changed for you too. We've all been through a very global collective event over that period of time. We've been looking at our truths, navigating our fears, uh, showing up to all of it, and we've been doing it together, which is so inspiring and awesome. And as I was looking back, um, I was kind of looking at some different interviews I've done over my career, and I happened upon an interview that I'm going to share with you guys today with Mary Morrissey. She was a part of an event I did in 2020 called the Infinite You Summit. And as I listened back to the interview, I was really like blown away at, well, in 2020, I was sitting there interviewing her, listening to everything she was saying. I was hearing all of this different stuff, listening to it today, because truly we're never the same. We always hear things differently at different times. And I know some of you have been around since the beginning of this show, and some of you are new here. And this was a really profound uh, frequency of information that I think is really, really important at this time. And I hope each of you hear this frequency and integrate it into your mind-body system. Mary, for the past 40 years, has been studying and applying and coaching thousands and thousands of people worldwide in transforming their results in business as well as in their personal lives. Uh, she has an incredible program called Dream Builder. I will put the link in the show notes, which teaches people the art and the science of building their dreams, which is super profound. And she talks a lot about frequency, like we talk about on this show, and how to shift your energy to attract the things you want into your life. She's the author of two best-selling books, No Less Than Greatness and Building Your Field of Dreams, which became a PBS special. And she has addressed the United Nations three times. She was invited to co-convene three different week-long meetings with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and met with President Nelson Mandela in South Africa to address some of the most significant issues that our world faces. Through her books and her live events and her programs, Mary has helped empower millions of people worldwide to achieve new heights of meaning, purpose, aliveness, and authentic success. So with no further ado, help me welcome Mary, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Mary, welcome to the Infinite You Summit. I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. No, I'm happy to be here too. Thank you for inviting me, Shannon. Yeah, so I, I love your work. I think that your contribution to humanity in so many different ways is 
so beautiful and so critically important at this particular time as well. And so I'm really happy to dive into this with you. And I wanted you to take us back um, in your life to, you talk a lot about dream building in your work. Who was the first person that really opened your eyes to the power of thoughts or dream building? Like we always have that moment where you go, oh, there's a different way to think. Who was that for you? Oh, that person came into my life at a critically important time in my life. Um, I was, uh, just to give you a little merry story here, I was uh, born in Portland, Oregon, raised in the upper end of Portland. I uh, had a high school experience like most young girls dream about. I was class vice president. I was, um, my junior year, I was class vice president. I was, I had the lead in the junior play. I was on the drill team. I was the homecoming princess from our class. And um, at the end of my junior year in high school, I was pregnant. My high school boyfriend had come home on, from college on spring break and I got pregnant. May 1, I'm telling my mom and dad, I am now pregnant. This is 1966. We had a hasty 10 person wedding. My mother wept for me as if I were dying. All her dreams for me were dying. Um, and I'd always wanted to be a teacher uh, and now I'm pregnant. So I didn't see this as an end of the road to my dream. I saw this definitely as a detour. I'm going to have a baby. Um, a couple of weeks after this hasty 10-person wedding, the principal of the high school called me in his office and said, listen, are these rumors I'm hearing about you true? And I said, if the rumors are that I'm pregnant and married in that order, then yes, they're true. And he just put his head in his hands. He goes, oh, Mary, you have great grades and terrific honors, but you will not be allowed to return here for your senior year. It would be totally inappropriate for a pregnant girl to get mixed in with the normal girls. But we do have a place. If you want to get a high school diploma, there's a place you can go. It's held after dark. It was actually held in a part of Portland, Oregon. I hadn't been allowed to drive in after dark. Uh, and it's where at night we do a night school for pregnant girls and delinquent boys. So that next fall, I drove across the river, parked my car, walked up to this school. It was Washington High School during the day and became Washington Evening High School at night, even though they didn't change the sign. Um, and I remember as I'm coming up the stairs to that uh, high school thinking, okay, every girl here is either, either has a baby or is pregnant. I'm now, you know, six months pregnant. Uh, every guy is some kind of delinquent. This is my new student body. And so, you know, and our, our listeners today, I don't know where you were at the beginning of your senior year in high school, but that's where I was. My son was born in December. I graduated from Washington Evening High School with my high school diploma in May of 1967. And in July, I was in an intensive care ward. And this sets the stage for that person coming into my life. I was in an intensive care ward in a Portland hospital having been diagnosed with fatal kidney disease. One kidney was totally destroyed with nephritis or kidney disease. The other kidney had 50% destruction and active nephritis. And in 1967, without transplants and dialysis available, this was a death sentence. And all of the MDs and the wonderful people trying to help me were you know, extremely sad for this 18 year old with a little baby telling her that the best shot if we could get the blood toxin level in my body reduced enough to remove the right kidney, then maybe I would have six months to live. And I was terrified. Um, and <clears throat> the God of my upbringing was not a friendly place to go when you felt like you had really screwed up. You know, later I would say that God needed to attend some anger management classes, but it was the only God I was raised with. And, um, and I just felt like I was being punished for being a bad girl. I mean, clearly I'm a bad girl. I got kicked out of my high school. I go to school with delinquents. I, uh, my best girlfriends that I'd had, the three of us, there were four of us who were just best girlfriends since fourth grade, 
when they, the mothers found out I was pregnant, they made sure their girls never spoke to me again as if what I had was contagious. So the rejection and the dejection. Uh, and so I'm just feeling that I'm you know, being punished. And the night before the surgery, a woman walked in my room identifying herself as a visiting chaplain who volunteered uh, numerous times during the week. When she got there, she was given the top 10 surgeries in the order of the most dangerous surgeries that would be done the next day. My name was at the top of the list. And so she came in and told me she was a chaplain. And did I want somebody to pray with me? And I was so scared. And I said, please. She pulled her chair next to my bed and she didn't do anything that looked like prayer, anything in my upbringing that looked like prayer. Um, we gone to, my mother had taken us to a Baptist church, so that had been the upbringing I'd had. And uh, she just started to talk to me and she said, would you be willing to tell me what's been going on in your life the last year or two? So I told her my story. And at the end, end of that story, she looked at me compassionately and she said, Mary, everything's created twice. You know, today I would say I, I had no landing page for that at that time. I was like, what are you talking about? And then she said to me, she says, you, you actually know this. In fact, everybody knows it. Almost nobody knows the power of knowing this. And then she said, the nightgown you're laying, the bed you're laying on, the sheets, the blanket, the, the ceiling, the walls, the floor, and all the machinery you're hooked up to. First, it had to be a thought before it could be a thing. And now that you're considering how everything is created twice, consider this. I, I hear how much you love your little boy, but I also hear how much you've been hating yourself. You feel like you shamed your school, you shamed your family, you shamed yourself. And you know deep down that if you think enough embarrassing thoughts, your cheeks are gonna get red. And if you think enough scary thoughts, your heart's gonna beat faster. Could it be that if you think enough toxic thoughts, self-loathing thoughts, that your body could get toxic. Well, I mean, this was all, it happened, you know, in, in this conversation and I'm thinking, no, this is just happening to me. This is not something I'm a part of generating. Uh, and I was just, these are my thoughts were racing. And then she said, could you believe it's possible? In, there are infinite possibilities. Could it be possible that we say a prayer and it just dissolves all that toxicity? And in the morning when they come to get you for surgery, they say, wow, you look better. We better test you. They test you and they say, we don't know what happened, but you have no sign of kidney disease. Could you believe that's possible? And I told her the truth. And the truth was, no, there was not one part of me that could believe she was going to say words and it was just going to evaporate. I believe way more in my pain than her promise or her idea that that could happen. And then she said, all right, if you don't believe that could happen, could you believe this? And she said, I want, again, I want you to consider that there are infinite possibilities. If there are infinite possibilities, could there be a possibility where we say words where we actually then scoop all the toxicity that's in your body and place it in that one kidney that's going to get removed? And when it gets removed, instead of getting worse, you start to get better and better and better. And ultimately you get well. Could you believe it's even possible? And something happened uh, in that moment inside of me. Um, I didn't believe it, but I could tell she believed it. And it was the first time looking back, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I can see that was the first time I ever chose to believe in someone else's belief that was operating at a higher domain or frequency than my own. And I said, well, I don't know if it's probable, but maybe it's possible. And then she just glomped onto that. And she said, that's all we need. One corner of your mind open to the possibility. Let's work with that. Now, remember, 
all of this is before there was a mind-body clinic at Harvard Medical Teaching Center. All this is before Sheldrake, uh, David Bohm, Unified Field Theory, before uh, Talbot out of Stanford writes Holographic Universe. This, this was 1967. And even though people are having ideas like this, it has not come mainstream for sure 50 plus years ago. So um, she's uh, great, this is all we need. And then she, she, her prayer was actually a pattern that she wanted me to establish in my thinking. She said, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna have the surgery in the morning. When you come back from the surgery and you wake up, your mind is gonna be busy with some pain that you're gonna be going through for a few days. As the pain ebbs, your mind is then going to want to go down the well-worn paths of thinking that you've been thinking over the last couple of years. So here's what I want you to do. The moment you notice a self-loathing thought, interrupt it and say, no, because we're, remember, we're sweeping this up and we're putting in the kidney, it's gonna get removed from you. So you say, no, that left with the kidney. And then immediately, because she had asked me if you did live, she also told me an important thing, that wanting to get well is not a big enough dream. Our wellness or our health is so we can do something with it. So we can create a family, so we can build a business, so we can start a foundation and contribute. Whatever it is that is our purpose or what brings us alive, if we, we want health for that. So you got to have that in your mind, not just wanting to be well. It's what you would be doing with your health. And so she said, so let's imagine then you interrupt, no, that left with the kidney immediately then because you can't just release a thought, you have to replace a thought at a higher frequency. So say, no, that left with the kidney. And then immediately, Mary, imagine. So I told her if I could live, I knew two things I would do for sure. I would raise my little boy and I would become a teacher. And so she said, so imagine this. Say, no, that left with the kidney. Now imagine that you've got a little boy's hand in your hand. He's five years old. You can feel the warmth in your hand of his hand and you're going up some steps into a school. And there's a happy kindergarten teacher and your little boy is so excited to go to kindergarten. You give him a big hug and he goes into his classroom and you're there. Then you hear the click, click, click of your heels and around the corner and there's your classroom and you're a teacher. Then fast forward in your mind and you're in a stadium or an auditorium and you see all these caps and gowns down on the floor and your son's name is called. It goes across the stage, gets his diploma, holds it up. You're on the stands cheering and he's so happy and you're so proud of him and so grateful for all the many moments of your raising him that brought you to this moment and your teaching career is growing. Then fast forward and you're in the front row of a wedding and it's your son's wedding. You're the mother of the groom. Feel that. And imagine that he's marrying the love of his life and you're there and your teaching career is flourishing. And she said, just keep repeating that. And that was what she told me to do. I was young, immature, struggling with my health, but I became what we today would call an unconscious competent. I just did what she told me. And um, the few days after the surgery, uh, maybe it was a week after the surgery, they said that my numbers had begun to stabilize. And that went on for another week where they were up and down, but more stable. And they said, well, you may end up with a little more time than we thought. When they, my family gathered at the time of the surgery, my husband at the time and uh, the surgeons and my mom and dad were there. Um, the surgeon said, look, the one kidney was totally destroyed. The other kidney is 50% destroyed. It's withered. It's, you can see nephritis throughout it. We don't know how much time she's going to have. Now, it was a couple of weeks later, and they're saying, well, maybe you're going to have a little more time than we thought. And if you 
are willing to come several times a week to get tested, you maybe you could go home for a while. So I went home in an ambulance. I was so weak, I couldn't get my head up. And I moved to my mom and dad's house so that they could help watch our little boy while my husband worked. Um, and I began imagining those things she told me to. I would just practice that. And over the next few months, my numbers not only stabilized, but subtly improved, improved, improved until about five months after the surgery, I'm sitting in a conference room with the surgeon, the GP, the urologist, I mean, all of them scratching their heads saying, we have no science for what's going on with that one kidney. There's no science that would say that one kidney can be functioning as a perfect functioning whole kidney. We don't know how long this is gonna last. We don't even know if it's gonna last, but whatever you're doing, keep doing it. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was too unconscious about how this all works, that we're always coming from a frequency. And I had repetitively for a couple of years coming from the weak frequency of self-loathing and um, rejection, um, deep, 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 you know, disappointment and shame. And she was helping me repattern that. And my body reflected that. So when we hear the word dis-ease, it's a very accurate word because the first the dis-ease comes in our own energy. And if we keep clothing it with thought, ultimately it must manifest in some form of itself. And so I was too young uh, and immature to get really interested in how this occurred. I was just glad that it occurred. But over the next few years, as I got, when I got my undergraduate degree, uh, I began to think into, well, this didn't just happen to me. There's something I began to explore everything I could find in the field of psychology and religion and the new emerging sciences. And I began to see patterns of how this works. I studied for a decade before I ever opened my first work. Meanwhile, I did get my undergraduate degree in my graduate degree in counseling psychology and two-year seminary. Uh, and it's not all been smooth sailing as any person who builds business in the world. But I've learned a tremendous amount in helping people find easy ways to transform the things in their life that many of which seem absolutely insurmountable or impossible. Such a beautiful story, such an empowering story. There's that moment of time where there's an opening for something different, right? Like someone steps into our life or we have something happen in our life. And it's so empowering to look back and realize what that moment is where things shift. And I'm curious, as you were telling the story, why do you think that the frequency that we are, let's say, born into many of us, or that is maybe the common denominator, almost frequency of people feeling, you know, things like shame and self-loathing, like, why do you think that is so pervasive in our society, rather than, let's say, the majority of people already having access to, like, let's say, the work that you're doing? Well, I, even today, I mean, with as much as we have New York Times, I remember dreaming with some friends one time who we'd, we'd been studying, can you imagine if there was ever a New York Times bestseller on this? And that was probably in the 70s we were dreaming that. And uh, today, I mean, even the, with as widespread as you can find this understanding and your beautiful work in the world, by the way, um, still really, I mean, maybe 5%. Most humans will live and die and never know the, and never even be in the conversation we're having today. We have thousands, tens of thousands of years of living what's called a condition-based life. We, we look to conditions as powerful and we have no idea just in fact who we really are, what we contain. And even if we begin to have a sense of it, it's only the veneer of what's really true about the soul, the life, the being that we are. Every one of us 
call it anything you want to. We are a spiritual being having a human experience and the depth, dimension, freedom, or constriction of that human experience is a science. So why I'm known as a dream builder is lots of people have dreams, but grounding that in the science of what brings those dreams into results has been the focus and the expression of my work over the years. Which is so beautiful. So we think of things all the time. Like we have lots of dreams. I mean, I think any single person comes up with ideas or dreams or concepts. And sometimes it's as simple as it goes in one ear and out the other, right? The idea pops in and pops out and you never think about it again. Or it's something that you think, gosh, I really do have this dream. And it, it might you know, not be there every day, but it might come up repetitively. What is it that has us not think our dreams are possible and how for someone that's listening to this, it's like, yeah, I kind of, I want to admit, I kind of have a dream. Cause I think sometimes we keep it secret, right? Like we, we don't even want to admit cause we don't want to be disappointed if it doesn't happen. Like how do we begin if we've got a dream in our heart to start bringing that into reality? That's a great question. Uh, first of all, we pause a minute and we recognize that if you keep breathing, you are gonna have results. You don't get to not have results. Those will be your life results just because you're living a life. And if we pause for a moment, look at our results right from where we are right now, we have health results, we have relationship results, we have some form of vocational or what we're doing with our time and talent results, whether we earn income doing it or not, and what we're, how much time freedom we have and how much money freedom we have. Those are current results. And when we realize we're going to create results anyway, results occur one of two ways, either from design or default. We've all been trained in a kind of thinking that could be called common hour thinking. If I want to start a business, I got to get the money. I got to get the business plan. I got to do, there's a way in which common people think about how to produce results. When they come into what you're doing, Shauna, when they begin to discover that there's way more to them than they've known, you begin to see that the common hour thinking is if you want to get to 25, you got to get 25 ones lined up. You got to have five groups of five. That's the only way to get to 25. When you move up the ladder of awareness, you begin to realize, oh, I can get to 25 with just two fives. And if you go up a little higher, you realize I can get to 25 with just one. So in essence, it's learning how U squared, how, how you work with the energy through a different kind of thinking. Um, and, and by means of that. So let's just imagine it could be way easier that right now when an idea comes of what you would love to do right away, you usually squeeze it down because you think, well, how am I going to do that? Where's the money going to come from? Who's going to want to do that? And we just squeeze it right down. If we entertain ideas a little differently, because imagine, first of all, none of us created ourselves. We, we, we didn't create ourselves. We find ourselves here and with the body and in, in life and and knowing that we didn't create ourselves, we also know that we can't even make our heart beat one time under our own power. The real power is in the life energy that's moving into and through us. In the same way that life energy is pressing through a blade of grass today to be the very best blade of grass it can be today and pressing through the edges of a tree to grow and stretch into its future self, that same energy is pressing into and through you and me. And it speaks to us of the soul's language, the first phase of new life seeking to emerge by means of us, it speaks to us in the language of longing and discontent. 
I would love it if I had more money at the end of the month. I would love to put my kids in whatever school they really want to go to. I would love it if I could help my aging parents. I would love it if, so the longing and then the discontent, but how am I ever going to do that? And, oh, I'm just so tired of trying to, you know, and both of those things going on is life speaking to us through expansion and constriction. Most of us just ignore those signals. You know, we just treat it as a longing or a discontent, but we don't recognize that once we begin to identify the longing and discontent, we can shape it into a vision. Through the use of one of our six mental faculties, everybody can name their five senses, almost nobody can name their six mental faculties we're using all the time, which is where we transact and transact with the infinite side of our nature. We have an infinite side of our nature, the same way we have a finite side of our nature. And so mostly we do it unconsciously. So, so many of us use this powerhouse faculty called imagination and we use it to imagine all the bad things that could happen. And rather than harnessing that in service of what would I love, which is a fundamental uh, question to ask yourself if you wanna be dream building. It's not, what do I think I can do? How could I make it a little better? How do I just solve that problem? What would you absolutely love if what was three years from now, put yourself in enough future pace so that your imagination will let you ground what you would really love, even if you have, and the important piece here is you have no idea how it's going to happen. Remember, she didn't say to me, let's figure out how you can have a life you would love, and then we'll figure out what that life can be. She said, if you lived, what would you love? What would your life be? I'd raise my little boy, I'd be a teacher. All right, let's think from that. Let's think from that result. But she couldn't give me the what we call now scaffolding images. He's five, he's 18, he's 30 or whenever he got married. Um, I was in every one of those though, by the way, first in my imagination and then in real world uh, experiences. I mean, just like just chills through me of gratitude about how this all works for all of us, for all of us. So you, what would I love? And then you build a vision of that. Once you have the vision, now you can tune into the vibration. So the, real, the main two phases of dream building are vision. Lots of people have vision. They have vision boards. They have all kinds of things and get the, the power to translate that. At the level of vision, it's real. It's just not in form yet. It's vibrating at a rate that doesn't step down into the forms we call our results. So the process of dream building is the process of blueprinting that vision and then building a match inside ourselves to that vibration, not even perfectly, but mostly, way more of us operating from that vibration. And the action steps from that vibration that bring it about. And it can be way easier and actually way more fun than most people ever find in their lives, but not you, <laughs> you found this for yourself. <laughs> well, it's, and so happy, the way you describe it is so beautiful. and. It reminds me of a story. I'll tell a quick story because um, I think you'll appreciate this too. That early in my career, I was um, I was a contractor, so I didn't have like a set you know amount of money that I made every year. And I had a funny thing happen where I made the same exact amount of money three years in a row, which would be almost impossible considering I'm getting you know commission paychecks and they're all different numbers at different times and different amount of deals. And at the third year, I was like, am I creating this number? I have to be creating this number. I have to have put a ceiling on what is possible for me at this number because there's no way that I could hit that same number three years in a row. 
And so that like curiosity about that made me say, what if I just start thinking every day about a different number? Like, and I just start literally sitting in that number, feeling that number wash over me, seeing it on checks, right? Living like it's already real. And the next year I doubled my income because I doubled where I was thinking, right? And this That's vibration different. and you said it's a and feeling and you had, you had, you had yep. the combination It's thinking and feeling from that vibration. Yes. What you noticed is what we call the inner thermostat. You measure the temperature in a room with a thermometer, but you set the temperature with a thermostat and it's a pattern. So it's a cybernetic system. It governs, measures and governs variance. So if the room gets a little too warm, it'll kick in cool air. If it gets a little too cool, it'll kick in warm air to keep it within a relative stasis of that setting. So we have unconscious settings on how much love, how much money, how much fun, how much freedom we can have. And if you want to know where your thermostat is set, you can see it in your results. It dictates our results. So you went to the right place to change that thermostatic setting, not I'm going to work harder. I'm going to gain more business. You changed it inside yourself and you turn around and it's like, wow, how did that happen? Well, you changed your setting. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is interesting is how we discount our power to do that, right? Like we do think we have to work harder and that's going to equal something different in love, in business, in every different area of our life. And can you talk about like how it works where, because what it feels like for me is, is almost becoming more and more still over time and yet drawing more and more into my reality over time versus running around kind of this metaphoric running around chasing things. So how is that working at a vibrational level when we are kind of magnetizing stuff into our reality? When we're working harder, running around, running around, we're trying to get to someplace rather than being a match for someplace. So you put it on first imaginally and energetically is if you went from five to 10, let's say that, you know, whatever the number was five and you saw it three years in a row um, and could be 50, could be 250, could be 500, could be 5 million. It doesn't matter, whatever the, whatever it was. And then you, you held in mind and then also in your energy, a different number. And because you were holding that and you had the frequency of that different ideas occur to you than what occurred to you if, oh, I'm only doing this and I want to do that. We're not a match at that point. So we can't possibly uh, allow the ideas that are actually resonant with the result we're holding in mind. So the important thing is to start by having a clear vision. And if you make a decision that I want to be a match for that, then keep coming and listening to Shanna and keep yourself doing things that at least support your knowing that if you come from that vision, you know, one of the great, one of the great quotes over time was uh, Henry David Thoreau's quote, who did a experiment in living where he said, I, I went to the woods because, and he wasn't a hermit. He didn't just stay there all the time, but he did an experiment in learning how to live um, in the vital energies of aliveness, where he wasn't just doing the same thing over and over again, really paying attention to where did he most come alive. And then he said, I went to the woods because I wanted to learn what life had to teach me on its terms and not find out when I came to die that I hadn't even really lived. And then he says, I've learned this at least by my experiment. His experiment was two years, two months, and two days long. He didn't set out to intend it to be that, but that's when he felt complete with the experiment. I've learned this at least by my experiment that if one advances confidently in the direction of their dreams 
endeavoring to live the life they've imagined. One passes an invisible boundary. All sorts of things begin to occur that never otherwise would have occurred. One begins to live with the license of a higher order of beings, meaning results happen for you way easier and way faster than most people. Higher, I mean, how, do they, how come they're so lucky? You know, they're operating with the same equipment you and I have, a body, a brain, and time, but we're, they're using it differently. And here's the, this is li literally a code. If one advances, meaning each day you're taking a step from the frequency of your vision, if one advances confidently, the confidence piece isn't you're confident in yourself, you're confident in these invisible laws. They're immutable, they're perfect, they're unchanging, unwavering. You are confident when you flip a switch in your house, most likely that the light's gonna come on. And if you don't get light, you don't think, oh my God, I better meditate more. You know that there's a glitch in the system you're not wired up for. You got to change either the light bulb or is it plugged in? You're, and if you can't figure it out, you know you're going to bring in somebody called an electrician who's going to figure it out for you. You don't just throw up your hands and go, I guess, I guess it's not in the cards for me to have the love of my life. I guess it's not in the cards for me. And we have all these superstitions that our species still thinks from. If one advances confidently, in the direction of their dreams, and here's the clue, endeavoring to live the life you've imagined. So if you imagine time freedom, money freedom, you've got the love of your life, whatever it is you really wanna bring into your life and you're having that life and you're standing at the kitchen sink doing dishes, what are you thinking? If you're the person having the life you're imagining, endeavoring to live the life you've imagined, that person is grateful. They're not going, oh, it's never gonna happen. They go to the grocery store, they don't yet have that person in their life, but when they walk in the grocery store, they're imagining that they do. And that person may be on a business trip. We're not coming home for dinner tonight and I'm going to shop. And I'm not the person going through the grocery store. Oh, look at them. They're shopping for two. And here I am shopping for one again. And they're, they're vibrating from the energy of being the person living the life they've imagined. And the good news about this, he uses the word endeavor there, I believe very um, strategically. Nobody does it perfectly. It's a matter of more than less. You just shift from the vibration that you've been more on and you shift to a new vibration. Things, you, you do pass an invisible boundary because the boundary was never out there anyway. It was always in here. Oh, so good and so true. And one thing I wanna to touch on too is if we're starting to build a dream, it can feel like nobody in your surroundings um, understands that dream sometimes, or you feel almost hesitant to share about the dream because maybe people will, you know, just say, oh, that's ridiculous. What do we do with this world that we've built from a certain frequency and all of these people in our life when we want to evolve and shift our frequency and start to step into our dreams? Do you have any advice on that? Lots of it. I can tell you, <laughs> you, were, you were absolutely right. Don't go to them. Uh, don't go to people who aren't living their dreams and ask them if you can. You, you can love the people in your life. You can honor them. Everybody has a right to, to live at whatever state or life that they end up choosing to live by, whether they're aware that they're choosing or not. Once you begin to awaken or once you begin to do some experimenting with living a larger life, you want two things. You want to protect that new dream. It's fragile in its beginnings. You know, all it needs is one raised eyebrow, like really? And it, it, you can easy to shrink in the presence of someone else's opinion or thinking you need their approval. They can't know your dream. It wasn't given to them. It was given to you. 
So you then want to support yourself by coming regularly, as I said earlier, to, to listen to Shanna, to be in support places where those who actually are building their dreams hang out so that you can just gain the support of being in some kind of a, it can be a virtual community, it can be a Facebook group that, that with ideas that are supportive and up, up leveling are. And you don't ask anybody to be different. You have people that you've invested in that are maybe part of your family or part of your, you know, the family you're living in now or friends that you love. And they're not, they don't have, they have no interest in what it is that you're now interested in. Don't try to change them, change you. Some will get interested and some won't. When I first came upon, it was October of 1971 that a whole series of things occurred for me. This is four years after, so it was 67 when I had that health crisis and I got well, but I, as I said, I didn't get interested in what really happened until October of 1971. And as three things happened in that one month, I just felt like I got shot through a portal and I was, I wanted, and I could see things. I felt like I'd been living in an attic of myself and somehow I'd found my way to the front door of myself. And here was a technicolor world. And I knew that I was part of something and that this, there was a way in which all of this worked and life was not happening to me. It was happening with and through and by me. And it would take me, after a few months of reading and just getting all charged up with this, I wanted it, and I was having so much more life. I wanted everybody I knew to have it. And I was unskillful. And I later began to call that my drum beating phase. And I was trying to put it in everybody's face. And the, you know, people were getting like this with me. And my parents even go, my God, Mary got religion. <laughs> and I, I finally realized this, this was ineffective. And that the best thing to do is let my life be the example of, and some will get interested and some won't. And it's okay. I don't have to shove it down anybody's throat. They either are interested or not interested in what I came to call dream building, not just dreaming, but dream building. I do want to say one more thing, and uh, for our listener, if you're in a really dark or difficult time right now, um, I mean, Shanna, you and I share something. I'm not even sure you know the second part of my story around losing everything I had built. Uh, I built my first business 23 years, poured my heart and soul into it, and grew it to be a $5 million a year annual business. And in, along the way, my children's father and I were married 27 years and I had midlife, you know, if we'd waited five years, we would have never gotten married because <laughs> we were never really on the same wavelengths on so many parts of what our adult selves wanted to be and do. But we had amazing kids and we did a good, good job. And there was always this great friendship and, and love between us. It just didn't mature, you know, in the ways that we wanted to over time. So in midlife, we called what we called completing the marriage contract, not the relationship, that's, that continues to go on throughout life. So that was 1991, uh, we completed that. And then by 93 or four, somewhere in there, I met, fell in love with and had a second marriage. Bright CPA, business guy working as a consultant, began to consult and uh, our board hired him to consult in our business, that's how I met him. And uh, we got married and the first, and I knew he had depression disorder when I married him but things began to get more and more distant between us over the first, you know, maybe seven years. And it was a lot of isolation for him and I couldn't break through. And even though he was seeing somebody to help him with that, it, um, and then I opened a piece of mail. I was staying home. I'd been speaking at the UN and working with the Dalai Lama and my book had become a New York Times bestseller and I had made a PBS special out of that. And I was very busy with my work in the world. And my dad was dying and I stayed home 
completely for the first time. And I was there for eight weeks and I just opened a piece of mail. And what I found there, I realized there had been something going on with the money that I was not aware of. Uh, I took it to outside consultants, both attorneys and CPAs who within a few weeks, my whole world disheveled. He had uh, embezzled all kinds of money out of my business. And as it turned out, a total of 11 businesses moving money around in some sort of manic decision-making um, extravaganza that none of us knew about. And when it all came out, all those businesses went bankrupt. And he went first to a mental hospital for a year where he got stabilized, could admit what he did, and then he went to prison for it, during which time we divorced. But my world, I remember the last talk I gave, my talks were broadcast all around the Northwest for years and years, and I had to close this business. And I mean, I, the minute I knew there was money missing, I told you know the group of people I was serving, um, I've always told you the truth, here's the truth, how deep it is, how wide it goes, we don't know yet, but we'll keep, keep you informed. Um, and uh, I was heartbroken in a way I'd never been heartbroken before. Um, gave my last talk and I went to the Oregon coast. Uh, you mentioned having a process you went through. I just, I had, I mean, I, for years, I, every Sunday I was doing a talk every week I was doing this and that. And now the whole thing was closed down. My kids were grown. I'm, um, living in a house I had raised, uh, not only my kids, but a couple of his kids. And um, I just thought, of, I just need to walk the Oregon coast. This was in Portland, Oregon. And after a few hours, I knew one day is not going to do it. Uh, went to a little real estate office there, and there was a woman there. And um, I said, you know, you know anyone who has a, well, first of all, I walked in. And she goes, oh, Mary. And I didn't know who she was. She's, you, you wouldn't know me, but I've come to your women's retreats over the years. And she says, oh, oh honey, I've been reading the paper. You've been through it. <laughs> the newspaper wasn't bipolar husband has breakdown and you know it was um you know made me look like a fraud and all of these things at first and um I mean it didn't matter that it wasn't true you know once it's printed it took time to get that you know cleared up but I was just devastated so I uh I said I just is there somebody who has a room I didn't have a job then I'll, I mean all the money was tied up in you know <laughs> attorneys and trying to sort out what had happened um and she said, uh, you know, I said, you know, anybody has like a bedroom they can rent? I just need to be at the coast for a while. I said, maybe 90 days. And she said, well, we have a house that's going to get in the rental pool, but it probably isn't going to get in the rental pool for four months. And just yesterday, the owner, it's a brand new house. The owner said, if I knew somebody that I trusted that they could stay there for just, you know, maybe 90 to 120 days just for the utilities. So I, this door opened for me to have this place, beautiful place to stay while I was walking that beach, pounding that beach, rain or, you know, it's Oregon, it's, it's you know, in the fall, it's rainy and cloudy and cold much of the time. Perfect weather for me to go through this process. And I cried and cried and the first place was just bereftness. And then as, it, I and I found myself mad and angry and feeling victimized and how could you do this and lie right to my face and blah, blah, blah. and mostly as I processed being mad at the other CPA who was supposed to be watching over this too and all of that mostly I was mad at myself and I think any of you have been through a difficult time in hindsight we can see things that we could have seen that we didn't see for whatever reason you know later I would come to realize I didn't want to see it 
because as a public person, I was more afraid of a second divorce than seeing the truth. That was a very expensive fear to allow to govern my thermostat. Um, and oh no, over time, maybe five weeks into that journey, one day I was walking and I wasn't crying. And um, I actually heard, first thing I heard was you're still breathing. And I wept because I hadn't heard from that inner voice for, you know, weeks, maybe four or five months. Um, almost like it wasn't going to talk to me anymore. And later I would realize I was broadcasting grief so loud, I just couldn't hear it. Um, uh, and they said, you're still breathing. And then I heard dark chapter, not your whole book. Mm. And that was the first thought I had is, oh, I could write a new book. And even with all the loss, I knew that I hadn't lost what had grown that first business was my love of helping people. My, the, when the, the light coming on in them and the difference that happened in their life and the changes that happened and the results that they gained, that hadn't gone anywhere. I loved that. When everything closed, I had a choice at bankrupting all of it or the building could go back to the, the original owners or back to whatever, you know, it was a 100,000 square foot facility. But there were people who had invested in purchasing all of that and to the tune of $10 million of people who had helped me. And I knew they hadn't just trusted the work, they had trusted me. So I made a decision that even in the absence of no job, no new work, I would either get it completely paid off in my lifetime or I would effort to get it paid off. Once I made the decision, I'm not gonna bankrupt that, I'm gonna do something to make it right, I could sleep at night. Even though I didn't do the things that had been done, I chose the person who did those things. And I had an accountability, I believe, for that. So I start my new business. Anyway, dark chapter, not your whole book. And then I just real quickly, I heard, so what did he do on Saturday? And during that first business, the only way I saw to teach transformation back in the 70s was to become a minister. And so I had founded and grown this wonderful church, non-denominational, all religions welcomed. It was a magnificent place where in those days, Wayne Dyer and Deepak and Marianne and all of those speakers and teachers who were growing, uh, uh, Mark Victor Hansen, Jack Hanfield, I mean, people coming and doing training, pretty much anybody you might have thought of uh, from that era. And, uh, and now it had all crashed and burned. Um, and I just made that decision. I don't know what I'm going to do. But in that era, I heard that day. So what did he do on Saturday? And I knew what it meant. That inner voice always speaks to us in a language we can understand. And as a minister, I had done 23, this is a 23 year piece of work. I'd done 23 Good Fridays, 23 Easter morning services, as well as other religious services from other religions. But that I had always done. And I had never asked that question. Friday's the crucifixion, Sunday's the resurrection. What happens on Saturday? It can't just be a no time. Something happens there. And I realized, oh, I'm in a Saturday. My old life is gone. My new life has not yet emerged. How do you do Saturday well? And that began an exploration for me in you know, making right first inside myself that I couldn't go forward as a victim and to take responsibility, grow from where I was, um, learn everything this came to give me, not ask for it to be gone too soon. I want to learn everything it came to give me and um, vision what, what could be next. And so just a shortcut, you know, I began to build. Interesting, you said uh, you had the same income three years in a row. 
as a minister, uh, the most I ever earned, and I'd earned that like five years in a row, was $150,000 a year. And that next year, without a job, I turned around and I had earned $150,000 with different people asking me on their stages. And I hadn't, it was just like, oh, okay. And then my friends, Wayne Dyer and Bob Proctor and others said, look, go into the profit making business doing this. If you're ever going to pay that $10 million back, you're going to have to make some money. We'll show you some of the things about that. And oh, I didn't get it paid off in just a handful of years. It took a little longer. I got it paid off in 14 years while I built two other eight-figure businesses. And just the last event I did, we had people from 110, 111, 111 countries. And I don't say that to impress you with me, but to your listener, what Shauna teaches and what you've heard from me today, there's not one problem you're facing that the power in you isn't greater than that. And as you tap into that and work with really what's authentic about you, you can transform anything in your life. You, and I believe every one of us is meant to live a life that we truly love living. So that was maybe 18 years ago in my life, now 17 years ago. And along the way I met, fell in love with this wonderful man. <laughs> We've been together 15 years now and married. We, we, we live near you, Shana. And uh, I have a wonderful blended family. They call me Bomo <laughs> for bonus mom. And I call them my bonus kids, his kids. And uh, it's just, you know, uh, there's no problem too big uh, if it's not too big for our own thinking. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Of course, it resonates so much. And I'm sure with every person um, can identify with that. And Mary, thank you so much. This has been amazing. This has been insightful. I feel inspired. I'm sure everybody listening does as well. Um, You're a gift. You're a gift to the world. So thank Thank you. you. Thank you for having me. Hey, lovely. This is Shauna Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Soul Frequency Show. If you got even one piece of valuable information, head over to Apple Podcasts and share a review with your takeaways. And follow us because we got lots more goodness to come. We are spreading the love far and wide. And you know where to find me over at IG at the Soul Frequency. Until the next time, love, here's to positive vibes and powerful awakenings.